welcome to The Hive Podcast, a show that helps inspire you to pursue your passions and ambitions. My name is Jared Spink and I'm your host. I'm a photographer, videographer, and entrepreneur. Join me as I sit down with other entrepreneurs and creators to learn more about their process, how they've built communities around their brands, and the experiences they've had along the way. I hope that these conversations inspire you to pursue your goals. You're listening to The Hive Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the Hive Podcast. Thanks for listening each and every week. And if you're watching the actual video version of the podcast, welcome. I appreciate you guys checking this out on the YouTube channel. If you didn't already know, we do now have a video version of the podcast you can check out. Go to my YouTube channel, YouTube forward slash Jared Spink. That is me, your host. And you can actually watch kind of the live recording of the podcast. So yeah. That's pretty cool that we're doing that now. I hope you guys are enjoying it. Well, our guest this week is none other than Ken from the original Dobo channel. He's a fantastic YouTuber and drone pilot. Super excited to have you on the show, Ken. Oh, thanks, man, for having me. Excited to uh, finally get on here. Yeah, man. I've, I know we've been working on this for a while. And uh, yeah, I, I was able to be on your live stream about, oh, man, I think it was actually just a week ago. And that was a lot of fun. And we we talked a, a lot about what we have in common, real estate photography. So we'll dive into that. But first, why don't you uh, kind of give the listeners or the viewers who are watching kind of a rundown of uh, who you are and, you know, tell, tell us about your YouTube channel. Yeah. So um, uh, I guess I go, I'm best known my original Dobo online. Uh, my real name is actually Ken. It's so weird actually hearing my real name sometimes because I'm so used to being called original Dobo. Um, but my channel, I initially started it out like just reviewing phones and tech stuff like that. And, um, then I ended up switching over to talking about drones and I talk about, you know, basically anything from consumer grade tech drones to, you know, commercial applications and things like that. Uh, more recently, I got into FPV, so the channel's sort of like drone tech, and I guess cameras. It's it's sort of a weird mix, but uh, we do a lot of camera stuff too. So uh, basically, anything you can use to film yourself or whatever, it's that's that's what the channel's about. Yeah, man, I really dig it. Um, you've been doing a vlog challenge this month. We're recording. Uh, well, for you listeners, it's currently December, but you're listening yeah. in late January, but in December, didn't you do a, uh, kind of a vlog challenge where you were doing, trying to yeah, do a vlog was, every single day? How'd I, that go? It, it was going good. It was going good. So, so December is a tough month for me because there's a lot of things that happen in December beyond like obviously Christmas and like preparing for the new year. So my birthday's in December, my wife's birthday's in December. Um, so my, my niece's birthday's in December. So we have like a lot of holiday stuff. So I, I mismanage time, which I, I do that pretty often. Um, I put more into like my actual, like the jobs, not so much into YouTube sometimes. So I started out really strong. We were doing like 14, 15 videos strong, you know, and doing the live stream. And I think I missed like one or two days. We still, we're still going to end up putting out like almost 30 pieces of content, but you know, there's like one or two days that we ended up missing. It's really tough to create content when you're also trying to do a day job plus trying to still run a business on the side. It's it's tough. It's almost impossible sometimes. It definitely is. So if you don't know, um, if you're listening and you haven't already heard that, I do a lot of real estate photography and videography. So does Ken, which is pretty awesome. So we have that in, in common. How did you get into the, uh, the real estate um, kind of creation, photography, videography? You know, it was... I actually lucked, lucked into this. So what happened was um, one of the agents that I still work with today, she was my first client. It was like two and a half, three years ago. Her photographer was out of town and somebody said, oh yeah, my brother-in-law does videos and photos and um, he can do it for you. I had no idea what I was getting into. I didn't know anything about doing real estate, photography, videography, nothing. And um, I went in there sort of blind and did the house for her and um, it came out like crap, but she loved it. And I was like, wow, I can actually make money with this. So then I was, you know, I was like, after I got my 107 and everything, I was like, you know what? I can, I can make money doing this. And the more I started doing it, the more I started refining my workflow. And um, 
yeah, the rest, the rest is sort of history. So it's just that, that one gig just sort of set me down that spiral that I'm like, Oh crap, this, this is, this is lucrative. Yeah, it, it really is. It's, it's a great industry to be in. It is great for, for anybody that's looking to make money, taking pictures yeah. and making videos. That's a good foot in the door. And you, you do gain a lot of experience doing that. So on top of the YouTube channel, on top of doing real estate photography, which isn't even like your main gig, no. right? So, um, how many businesses do you have, um, Ken? Jesus. Um, so, so my main job is I'm a software engineer by day. So by day I'm a software engineer, uh, by night YouTuber. Um, and then when I'm not doing software, I'm doing real estate photography, videography, uh, on there as well. I have a uh, production company as well that we do like more, like, I guess, more like for businesses that want to create training videos and uh, promotional marketing material for like internal use. We have that as well. So I guess three sort of, I mean, if we're not counting YouTube four, if we're counting YouTube, I don't know, I guess it's just best to diversify, especially like the way things are today. You know, you got to diversify. Absolutely. Yeah. So you're really well known for flying FPV drones, um, which is, I mean, what exactly is an FPV drone? I mean, I know what it is, but technically what would define an FPV drone? So, I mean, layman's term, I mean, FPV is um, first per person uh, view, obviously. So basically there's a camera. There's usually two cameras on these drones. One, one camera that you're, you know, capturing the view. The other camera is my visual. And basically it's like the equivalent of me, me actually being in the cockpit of this, you know, quad, whatever you want to call it. Everybody calls them something different. Uh, but that's FPV. And, you know, FPV is like, it's pretty diverse because there's all sorts of stylings behind it. You have the cinematic, you have, um, you know, freestyle, you have, you know, racing. So there's so many different ways to go about it. And I think that's what's so cool about it is that, you know, for every style or desire, there's, there's a different flow that you can choose which is sort of neat. And that's what's so, so attractive to it for me. Plus two, it's not something that everybody can do. Like everybody could pick up a GPS drone and just start flying it. But with these, it takes time to really get that sort of smooth feeling. Um, it could take months. Some people, it takes years. Some people, they just, they still fly, you know, they're flying for years and they still can't figure it out. But, but that's the beauty of it. That's the allure of, of FPV for me. It's the challenge. Yeah. I mean, the shots you can get with them are, just insane. Oh, so what would be some of the advantages of using an FPV to film versus a standard GPS drone, like, you know, uh, Mavic two pro. I would probably say the two massive advantages of FPV over anything else is speed and proximity. So when you, when you talk about speed, these things can hit, you know, 120 miles an hour in just a, a blink of an eye. Like, so that's, that's really important. And then the proximity factor comes into play is because you're actually in the cockpit of this, this drone, essentially, you know, you can, you can get close to things cause you have, you know, sort of spatial awareness to like things around you. So it's different than flying GPS where you're seeing this camera view, but you really can't see above your camera. So that spatial awareness allows you to capture views that maybe you couldn't get with just any other drone. It's obviously, it's an acquired taste, but I think that is is the biggest thing with it though. And you've started to incorporate using FPV video into some of your real estate videos too, right? Yeah, I started doing it. It's, it's sort of, it's hit or miss, you know, you got to have that right property. Not every property, you know, I'm in Florida. So a lot of our houses here, they're like these suburban flats and they're not all that impressive. But once in a while, we'll get like these million dollar homes with massive pieces of land. And you can just take a, a you know, a quad and just go ripping down the property and really capture like this all, all of a sudden, like very shocking view. Um, but it, it works. The agents like it. You know, it's it's always a big thing. You give them the goggles and let them take a ride with you. And it's like they just lose their minds. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. So what are if someone wants to get into flying FPV, what's kind of the basics uh, that they need to know before they, it's expensive, it's expensive, it <laughs> it's expensive. Um, it's expensive well, because what's, you a, break what's stuff. so expensive about it? Um, uh, breaks down. it's expensive because you're going to break stuff. Um, you got your goggles, you got your RC, you know, a lot of people think, well, I get a goggle, I get RC, I get a quad and I'm done. Well, no, now you have batteries, you have the battery chargers, so you need props, you need tools. So 
the biggest thing, like what I didn't realize when I first got into this was it all of a sudden it started nickel and diming me, which sort of sucked, but it, it is what it is. You know, it's, uh, it's one of those things like you can go as fast as you want or as slow as you want. My, my recommendation to anybody looking to fly FPV is get yourself like a little binding fly, something that's ready to go, super small one, and just get the overall stick feel and just sort of figure it out first. So you have a very, very minimal investment. Like if you go into the DJI stuff, you're going to go down like, you know, a thousand dollar rabbit hole in a hurry. So take it slow, I guess. What kind of cameras are you using on your FPVs for like the actual main filming mostly of the video? Mostly GoPro. You know, it's still today, it's really hard to beat GoPro. Yeah, there's like Insta One and there's the, the DJI Osmo. But for me, the stability and just the overall color and just like the sharpness and everything of GoPro is still really hard to beat. So hard to beat. Now, because the lighting, I'm, I've always been curious about this because the lighting is is changing so rapidly and mm. so fast when you're flying these. How do you properly expose for your image using a GoPro? Are you putting it in auto or <sighs> are you setting a manual exposure? It depends. It depends on the shoot. Like if I'm, if I'm doing something that I, I can't have an exposure value change, I'll throw it in. I'll throw it into manual, you know, like if it's in control lighting, if it's like, if I know I'm not going to be going underneath anything too drastic where I can be like, all right, this is the perfect exposure. Yeah. You'll, you'll throw it in that exposure and you'll let it run. Otherwise I'll throw it in auto. And honestly, GoPro's auto exposure does a really good job. It's just in those situations where let's say I go under tree coverage and come popping out of the tree coverage. That's when you're going to have an issue. So the best thing I do is like what I'll do is beforehand. If I, if I know I'm going to take a shot like that, I'm going to go under the tree coverage and expose for the highlights outside of there. But I want to see how, you know, how it looks like I want to try to get the maximum amount out of it. So it's hard because you don't, we, we don't have action cameras like with a true log profile, like Insta one does, but they just don't look that great. Like they don't look the color profiles. Yeah, it's just help. not the same no. as GoPro. So we need that. But a lot of people are, are shifting over to what we call cine lifters where we're lifting black magic cameras and stuff um, on an FPV drone. So we're, we're sort of fixing that problem ourselves essentially. So that's pretty yeah. cool. Uh, you're just getting a giant, a giant FPV. Then, yeah. Right, essentially. Yeah. Essentially. <laughs> and you're flying, you know, a red or, um, you know, uh, Gosh, Black Magic 6Ks. I've seen 4Ks. 4K is pretty popular, actually, to fly. Gotcha. So that's that's well, what why I'm is the 4K doing. more popular than the, the 6K? I think it's affordable and it's pretty light. If you think about the the lenses that mount to the 4K, oh, yeah. the lenses are lighter and they can put like a super wide angle like Lawa lens on there, and then you're just you're good to go. Um, and then you can just shoot in B-Raw, and then you, I guess you can just adjust your exposure and ISO and everything after the fact. You don't really have to worry about it which is sort of a nicety. Are, are you 3D printing a lot of your parts too for your FPVs? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I got a, I got a 3D printer back here. Um, so whenever I build something, I usually, you know, figure out, okay, what am I going to build? And then I'll, I'll download all my files that I need and just print them out. You know, and take, it takes time. That's another thing that takes time. You got a 3D printer is a must if you're going to start with FPV. Otherwise you're paying somebody else. And then if you break something, you now have to wait for that person send you apart so it's sort of like a, a constant waiting game and yeah sounds like a lot of investment you gotta have a lot of patience yes uh, you do. i would struggle with that for sure um so when did the the drone let's talk about your youtube channel and how did you kind of go from reviewing phones to i mean essentially would you describe your channel as as a drone channel I, I try not to because i just sort of go off on tangents on things and just like go off all over the place i don't really have a theme and that could be a problem too like people are always like oh you're not you're not growing as fast as some of your peers and i i guess i, I don't really give a shit because i'm like i want to do what i want to do you know i want to do what's happy to me i don't want to fall into that complacency that you have to pick a specific niche to grow like sometimes it's just not about youtube but i guess it was four years ago it was Christmas time, actually. I got a uh, a parrot drone, like one of the first parrot drones. Got that drone. I flew it, and I immediately like wrecked it and destroyed it. And I was like, man, that was a lot of fun. But I wish I didn't destroy it because now I know what I did wrong. So I ended up getting another one. And it was after that drone, 
I kept buying them and they were, and they were cheap drones at the time. They were like 200, 300 bucks. And, you know, it sort of made me think, I'm like, man, I need something better. So I ended up buying a, a Phantom three standard or something like that. And, uh, it was good. And it was like, every time I got a new one, it was like an incremental upgrade. You know, it was like constantly I'm, I was, I was sort of stepping up this ladder. So it was about four years ago though. And ever since then, I've always talked about them or used drones some in some capacity. And this was even before you needed a license to actually do this. You know, you didn't need a license at yeah. one point. Yeah. When did the part 107 go into effect? Was that about three years ago? I think, I believe it was 2016, 2000, late 2016, the part 107 went into effect. Um, and, and then you, you know, you had to take the test and you had to have a license to do this. Obviously us doing commercial real estate and everything whole different ball game, obviously, but, um, yeah. So then now here we are today. Yeah. The, the test is really interesting because essentially it has nothing to do with actually flying and operating <laughs> the drone. It's, it's all these just FAA regulation. I mean, it's stuff that pilots, actual pilots need to know, but well, it's also good because you're up there with them. So right. And they treat us like a pilot. For. That's the thing. They treat, yeah. they treat a drone operator like a UAS pilot. They, you are a pilot essentially, even though you're not actually sitting in the cockpit of the plane, you, you ultimately control the fate of where, where that, that unit is going to go. So that's a big deal. I mean, one of the niceties though, is we don't have to do our recurrence anymore with this new, this new, this new ruling that they put out. Supposedly the recurrence change, you no longer have to go to a testing facility to do your recurrent, which I always thought that was a bit of a cash grab. Like okay, I paid $150 for this license. Now I got to do a recurrent and I got to go back every two years and pay you another $150. Sort of weird. So um, yeah. they now have it to where that's that's no longer a, um, a thing, which I think is pretty cool. When does that go into effect? 60 days from now. I got to look at when my license expires. Yeah. It, oh man, I think mine expires at like the beginning of February. So I might still have to do it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I hope, I hope that my, so I, when COVID started, my, my license was due in September. So I went online and I was like, oh, you can take your test online. They let you because a lot of testing facilities were closed. My testing facility was technically open, but I was like, well, they're letting me take it. So I'm going to take it. I'm not going to go into a facility. I feel more comfortable with this. So I did it and I was like, all right, this is cool. That bought me six months. So my thought is I, I should be just under that cusp. I need to understand more of the rules as to what, what all this means, because there's all sorts of new rules. Like we can fly at night now, technically, technically you can fly over people with some of these rules. So there's a lot of things that they, they ended up doing that were just sort of counter counter intuitive of what they used to tell us. So now, mm -hmm. now we can do it. It's, it's sort of weird. So I gotta, yeah. I gotta get it all figured out. I, I really hope to get some more direction on that soon because like, like I said, my license expires in February. So what, wh if I go do my reoccurrent, what am I, what am I looking at? Do I need to know all the new stuff or am I, am I basing it off the old stuff? Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing. That's the thing. It's going to be a open, it's going to be an open book test and it's, it's, it's going to be a mess. It's going to yeah. be a mess, I think, but we'll have to wait and see exactly what they say right now it's still so new it's 60 days for it to go in effect and technically speaking even though it goes in effect in 60 days there's nothing that they can do about it until it's firmly in effect so it's weird how they operate they're like okay the rule is now but it actually isn't now it's weird so weird. yeah so let's dive into that um as of recording this podcast just this week there has been huge new legislation and laws that have been proposed and will be going into effect regarding drones. What are some of the, the big changes that are happening to those of us that operate drones? So, so for those of you that operate a drone, we now have this thing called remote identification. And what remote ID was proposed as, if this is the first time you're hearing this, was a way that um, law enforcement and other aircrafts can communicate and basically have like a digital, we'll call it a license plate. We can see your license plate in the air. We know how high you are, your altitude, your speed. Basically, we can grab and capture that information at a moment's notice 
Um, and the idea behind this was to better maintain the air traffic that is impending. So Amazon, UPS, all these logistics companies obviously want to make use of airspace and have drone deliveries. So we need to understand, you know, the airspace is going to be much more crowded in a couple of years, probably not like tomorrow, but soon it will be. So what they did was they came up with this thing called remote ID. And in, in them doing so, it's, it's sort of posed problems and solutions all in the same. It's hard to really get into it, you know, because we, we make this whole podcast would be about that. But essentially, we're going to have, you know, new drones eventually will have these modules built in that they can broadcast, you know, a digital license plate, essentially. Um, I guess that's the simplest way to put it. So if you need to know anything, you're, you're going to have a license plate. People are going to know who you are at some point. Yeah, it's sorry, guys, if you're hearing that, my dog is having a sneezing fit under the desk right now. Um, I was wondering what that was, man. Joys of uh, recording in your own home studio. Um, Let's talk about that. So you have your own uh, studio at your house. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about about your setup. So how big is your studio? How many different sets do you try to incorporate in it? Um, It is probably, I want to say, I'm looking at this room trying to gauge it. It's probably 22 feet by 20 feet wide. So it's, you know, it's a pretty, pretty big space. Um, square footage wise, it's probably maybe 500 square feet, maybe in, inside this office space. So, I mean, it's not huge, but it's, it's, it, the problem is it gets so compact. It gets so cluttered too. It really um, does. As, I try to simplify things and every time I simplify it, it gets worse. So I give up with it, but I have basically I guess two sets. I have this right here, which is me sitting at the desk. And I mean, three, technically, if I really wanted to be keen about it, I can have the sit down spot and I can have it where the camera's filming towards the desk because this corner is like, I have it like set up to where, yeah, it's like the perfect spot to film. And then just behind me, like, like directly back there, that's where I'm typically filming, doing like my product talking shots. And then same thing here. I have, I have actually, well, it's down now cause I screwed it all up, but I usually have savage paper hanging from the ceiling and I could just lower down the savage paper and I can give myself an entirely different look, like a cleaner look, you know, entirely different, um, savage paper and myself. That's like a love hate relationship though. <laughs> and so let's talk about some of the challenges of having a home studio and running a, a successful YouTube ch- channel out of tough, a man. room in your house, man. So what are some of the challenges? How, how do you overcome them? Other than, you know, my challenge is <sighs> I can either have my dog in the office with me apparently and having a sneezing fit or she'll be out in the living room and she'll bark at every little noise. So, so those are my challenges. You, you have a dog. I have kids. Um, <laughs> and having kids, I think, can be really challenging because, you know, my daughter's room's technically right next door. And you know, they don't understand like, Hey, I'm trying to film these mics are sensitive and they pick up all the noise, but you know, they'll be just talking, whatever, but they're pretty good. They're not too terribly loud about it when they hear me filming. However, with that said, my freaking wife will just like, I'll be in mid, I'll be in a on a roll. Like I'm hitting all my talking points. I'm not screwing up. The lighting's great. Everything is amazing. And she just walks, opens the door. And just, just starts like, she'll be putting, I don't know, stuff in here, like packages or whatever. And I'm like, and it throws me off. And I'm like, what are you doing? You see the doors closed. You can literally hear me. What are you doing? I mean, it won't like, it throws me into an absolute tizzy because (laughs) there's nothing worse. There's nothing worse. You're hitting your rhythm. And these videos, like that's the hardest part for me is filming. It's not the editing that sucks. Editing is easy, but it's setting it up, getting the shot. And then offloading, like editing. I love editing. I hate shooting. Yeah. I'll edit all day. I hate shooting. Yeah, I, I I feel the same. I'm not a big fan of having to re- actually record the videos. Yeah. I, I prefer to edit my own videos. Um, and But it, there's like a catch to that, right? As much as I love editing, I hate editing other people's stuff. Like if I'm going to edit, I want to edit stuff I've shot because yeah. I shoot in a way because I know how I'm going to, you know, edit the video. Well, it's, it's like, it's like trying to put a get, put together a puzzle after somebody dumped the box out or you, you don't see it. Like you don't want to put together somebody else's puzzle. So I, I totally feel that I hate doing that. Cause people have always asked me, Hey, will you edit my video? And I tell them no, because I don't know what they want. You know, 
Now, if some, and that's, and that's also part of the reason why I would never get an editor to edit my YouTube videos, because I'm afraid that an editor wouldn't be able to convey my thoughts. Like you got to know, like you have to really trust people. And I get it. Like some of the larger channels, they have editors, but I think at that point you're in the office and all you're doing is giving that person some sort of creative direction or they were there when you shot it. So they saw it put together. So it makes much more sense. I mean, certain videos, certain videos, I think it's okay to have somebody edit that for you. Maybe like a review or something like a product review. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's pretty simple. B-roll talking. All right. That makes sense. But if you're doing a vlog or you're like sitting there and there's multiple things happening, it's really hard to give up that creative flexibility. Really is. So with your home studio, I'm sure you're like me and you're always kind of looking to tweak things to make it more efficient. Yeah. So what, what have been some of the best things you've added to your studio to make it work better for you? Uh, SD card readers, man, SD card reader, all things, um, Samsung T5 drives. Um, I'm always trying to figure out storage solutions, right? Like Mm -hmm. storage. I'm really bad about backing things up. Um, I I'm a, uh, premier pro editor. So I try to back up mostly everything I have, um, I usually edit off of this massive machine right here to the, like to the right of me. Um, but I've recently started using a Mac, which I don't really know how I feel about it yet, but it's not terrible, but I, I use SD card readers like crazy. I have them like mounted under my desk and each there's like multiple of them. So each SD card reader goes into either the Mac mini or the computer that saves me massive amounts of time. And then I have shared Samsung T7 drives that, go to both computers. So no matter which one I'm on, I can pull the files between the two with just simply toggling them. So, um, that saved me a lot of time too, but yeah, having drives and just ability to offload files is, is honestly massive. Yeah. That, that's huge for me. I just got these wall mounted boom arms. So okay. it's, I'm in such a tight that is space. Efficient. Yeah, I'm in How such a tight space. How big is your office? It's, it looks bigger than. Yeah. I mean, it's just it a looks standard. Big. It's a standard bedroom. So, I mean, what okay. is it like? Not, I don't mean, it's not like a perfect square. What, maybe but, it's but like it's, 12 but by it's really 10 clean, or something though. like that. It's, I try it's to really keep it like clean. I'm very it's OCD. super clean. Yeah. I, I wish, I wish when I reset my office, like this is actually the second office. I was in another room in the house and I outgrew it. And I was like, all right, well, you're, you're getting this room. I'm taking your bedroom type of thing. Um, and when I reset this, my mentality was I want to keep it clean. I want it simple. I don't want it to get it cluttered. That lasted for like three months. That lasted for three months. So now here I am again, set number, design number, whatever. And it's um, it's a flipping mess. It's a flipping mess. But that's the problem. Like I'll start out super simple and nice and clean. And it just, just goes to hell. Yeah. For so me, fast. like I need it to be clean. I, it, just because I'm OCD about it. Like I need it to be organized. Um, yeah. And so some of the struggle I, I ran into is with the podcast is I would always have to like, I would always clean everything up. I would, you know, put the roadcaster away, put the mics away. Same. It was just on the one desk behind me. Uh, so to help just be ready to go all the time, you know, I got one of these Husky desks and kind of just set the whole, basically made a whole nother desk setup in the office just for podcasting. Um, but because it's a tight space, having the the light stands and, you know, a tripod, it was, wasn't very easy with those on taking up floor space to be able to get the desk yeah. in the right spot. So these wall mounted boom arms have just, now you get this consistent look all the time because the boom yeah, arm that, just folds that's out That's what I lack is a consistent look all the time because I'm always, I'm always changing it. I did actually today, before we even started filming this, I started messing around because I, I decided I'm going to make the uh, Panasonic like that's going to be my a cam from now on. So I'm filming on the, the XT three right now. And I said, well, you know what? I'm going to leave this on my desk in the same spot. And I actually put a, like a little mark. So I know exactly where the camera angle has to be to, to get this same look each time. And then I just have like, uh, I don't know. It's like a panel light just to the right of me here. And it's literally like a foot, foot away from my face, but I'm going to leave it here. I'm, I'm going to leave them up all the time. And that's just, how I'm going to roll, roll with it because this is a lot more simple. If I want to sit down and just do a brain dump video, this is perfect. Yeah. Setting up great. a shot is a pain in the ass. Shut, setting up shots are the biggest pain in the ass. Yeah, really they, they, they really are. 
Um, so we've talked about your home studio. We've talked about a little bit about the YouTube channel. You also do a weekly live stream, um, which is a ton of fun. I loved being on it called Drone Brews. Kind of walk us through how long that's been going and and why you decided. It's, it's a fantastic name, but kind of why you decided to do that. It's so funny. I'm like, I don't know why. I don't know why I named it that. Um, so here's what happened. Obviously with COVID and everything coming down, it was like, I used to travel a lot. We would travel a lot. We'd do events and meetups all over the place. Like I would travel cross country, meet up with people from whatever state we would have, you know, five, 10, 15 people out there flying drones and just having a good time. When COVID hit, we couldn't travel. A lot of states had those stay at home orders and it was just unsafe for a lot of the fans to to get out flying meat because my demographic is, is sort of odd. Like I, I, my audience is actually on the upper end of the spectrum of like the 50, 60 year old type of demographic as well. I have youngers, but the vast majority of my audience is a little bit older. So I was like, I was like, how can we make this work where we can just sort of all hang out? And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do a live stream. I always heard, you know, people say, well, doing a live stream hurts your channel. Like it hurts your channel. And they, they always told me this. And I was like, you know what? I don't care if it's going to hurt my channel. I just want to hang out with the audience and, you know, they can chat and whatever. And that's what we did. And we've been, we've on, we're on, I think 30 episodes now, 30 or 30 or 25 episodes, something like that. We, we do it a lot and we do, we do more than one sometimes, but yeah, every week, nine o'clock, it's just grab your beer, hang out. We usually have a topic. We stray way far away from the actual topic and title of the stream a lot, a lot. <laughs> but that's because usually I get drunk by like 35, 40 minutes into the stream and then everything's just a mess. But but that's we have we have a lot of fun and it's sort of a no holds barred stream. It's not everybody's cup of tea. And I think that is to be expected. You know, it's a little bit more, I guess there's more ruckus than, than most people would care, but that's the fun of it because you can get away with that here because everywhere else you got to be proper and you have to, you know, put on this, I don't know, I call it the YouTube facade, but there you're just screw it. Everybody can be anybody they want to be, do whatever they want or be who they really are. It doesn't matter. And there's just no holds barred. So that's drone Bruce. So it's a guys I'll link, of course, everything will be linked down in the show notes or the description of the video. If you're watching, uh, the video version of the podcast. Uh, you've brought on a quote-unquote producer for the show, producer yeah. Paul. Paul's a great guy. Um, how long guy. How long has he been helping you with the show? Um, so Paul, I brought Paul on probably, I was probably 14 episodes in and I was just sort of doing it by myself. And I was bringing guests on periodically, right? Like I was bringing guests on. And at the time I was using the hell was it I was using? Uh, it was like, it was XSplit. It's not the best program, by the way, to do live streams, especially if you want to bring guests on, right? So StreamYards announced, they're like, all right, we're doing 1080p streams. And I was like, all right, you know what? Now's the time. I'm going to jump on the StreamYard bandwagon because they have 1080p uploads. It doesn't get any more simple than that. It's it's like this, the Ecamm Live it's a great software, although it seems like I'm lagging. My voice doesn't match. Maybe it's just my window doing that. Hopefully it's not like that on your end. I don't Hopefully know. Hopefully not. We'll, we'll see. I, I noticed that a Hopefully little bit not. too uh, when you're recording, but the, the finished product comes out good. Okay. Well, hopefully hopefully that's all that is because I, I'm interested in this, but I, I said, you know, the, the show is lacking something. Every And you look at every great live stream that's like, like that runs on like sort of like a series. Like look at Linus. He has the WAN show. He's got a guest. He's got somebody to bounce off of him. And, you know, I was like, I could ask any one of my other channel buddies that fly drones. But then I said, you know what? I don't want it to necessarily be just a drone show, even though it's drone brews. Sort of sort of odd that I would do that. But Paul and I started talking and I asked him to come on the show. And at first, like the first show, people were like, who the hell is this guy? Like who is that we don't know who he is. And the thing about Paul is if nobody has ever met this guy, he's very wholesome, right? He's like sort of innocent in a sense. And like, I'll, I'll say a joke to him and it just flies right over his head. Like it's, he's just that funny type of guy. 
And I was like, all of a sudden he was like the perfect, he's like the um, yin to my yang. If, if I had to compare it to anything, because he's like the perfect offset contrast to my personality. That's where Paul comes in. And um, so I brought him on to the channel and he's like, well, I want to do more than just a show. I want to help out. I want to see what we can do with this. So we had this idea is like, you know, for, for the channel, you know, I don't want the channel just to be about like me. I'm not original Dobo. The channel is original Dobo. And I don't think people really correlate that. So he, he makes video. He does content for the channel from time to time when he has time, but he does like all the optimization and whatnot on the back end. He sort of helps with the ideas, not so much this holiday season, but he has in the past. So he's helped out quite a bit actually. So nice, it's been, a, it's been an interesting time. That's, that's really cool. Um, let's see, what else do we want to talk about? I mean, there's so, we could just talk about anything. Let's talk about your, uh, about let's talk about uh, real estate. We dived into that when I w- was on oh, the yeah, show. Yeah. So what are, for anyone that's looking to start making money with photography, real estate is a great way to start doing that. It's essentially a very low cost way to get into making money with your camera, right? Yeah. There's not much you need other than your camera and a good wide angle lens. What are some of the the tips that you've learned along the way that could really help somebody produce a good um, image for real estate agents? Let's start with maybe what are some of the mistakes you made and how did you learn from those? Oh man. Um, mistakes was not practicing, you know, it's, it's like anything else, like real estate, photography, videography. It's, it's like a sport. You get better with more practice and I should have practiced more on my own house before I went into other places. But I mean, you live and learn, but my, my recommendation to anybody is know the equipment that you have and don't make changes to your equipment before you actually go into um, a house, if that makes sense. Like you don't want to like take new equipment and gear into a house, right? Um, I'm notorious. I'm really, really bad about doing this. I'm really, really bad. I'll get a new camera and I take it to a client's house. Like I know nothing about this camera at this point and I'm shooting with it day one and images may not be right. Or, or I get a new lens and I'm like, we're going to take this into the house and we're going to start shooting with it. We know nothing about this lens. I'm super guilty of that. Don't do that. That's the worst thing to do is then you bill a customer, come to find out that the images are out of focus or something or the color's off or whatever the case may be. It's it's super painful to see that happen. Yeah, def- I've definitely been there and made that mistake more often than I probably should have oh, <laughs> with new gear. It's a mess, dude. Yeah, um, that's still yeah what, what are some other, some of the basics uh, that people need to know? Just because, just like anything, right? Like, portrait photography or product photography, there are certain techniques that are very specific to that style. So what are some of the ones that you can share? I think one of the biggest things, one of the biggest misconceptions is, is in real estate is that you want a super fast lens. Like you want a F 1.4 and F 2.8 lens. And the reality is it's not like video. It's not like video video. Like you don't, you don't really need like you need it, but you don't need it. Like, and in real estate, it's different. You got to think differently. Like how we like to have our videos have this blurry background behind us and whatever, and like super depth of field and cinematic Mm -hmm. in real estate. We don't want that. We want to try to see as far as we can into a house. Like I want to like come through the front door and be able to see to the kitchen and it's super sharp. So I would say the biggest thing is that you want to shoot at higher F stops. Like you want to be at like F7, F8, if you're on full frame F8, if you're on, you know, APS-C, F7.1 is a great starting point. Even F6 is a good starting point. But stop down on your on your aperture because it's going to give you a sharper image. You're going to be able to see further, you know, further. The other thing I would recommend to anybody is if you're just starting out, don't rely on autofocus when it comes to real estate photography. I oh, shut yeah. it off all the time. I use focus peaking a lot. Um you know, and, and some of my manual lenses, I just use, um, I have it set to like, I know it's set to infinity and that's, that's it. Because the last thing you want to do is find out all of a sudden you have soft focus, like where it's sort of in focus, but it's not been there. <laughs> the, those are, those are hard. Those are hard things to do. Or like you figure out like all of a sudden, 
um, your lens wasn't focusing. I used to shoot Sony and one of the lenses I was shooting off for a while was the Tamron 17 uh, to 28. And that lens had a soft focus issue. It wouldn't quite focus firmly. And I would go back to the house and I would find a lot of shots like sort of not in focus entirely. And it drove me nuts. And it was always on big high end houses. So what I started doing was I would just start to set it manually and I never had to worry about it again. But those are the things you learn, like when you start learning about your gear. And that's like prime reason you don't want to take your gear into a house, you know, for the first time, especially if it's new. You got to really understand it. You have to trust it, practice with it. Um, but yeah, that's manual focus, high apertures, big one. Um, tripod with gear heads. Can't recommend them enough. You know, anything that's going to make your job faster when you're shooting real estate um, is a big deal. Um, I used to bring in way too much gear. Yeah. You know, you would go shoot a house and I'd have like a menagerie of things. So now my rule of thumb is less is more. And my backpack never leaves my back. Oh. I always have it on my back. So if I take a piece of gear out of my bag, it's going right back. I don't set anything down in a customer's house anymore. Um, one, it's just, you don't know like what's on the floor. You don't know. So it keeps me from having the clean gear. Um, but it also prevents me from losing things. The worst is when you come back and you lose a, an expensive lens or a lens hood or a cap or whatever it is. It's just annoying. It's always something small like that too. And that that's it is. the advantage of not bringing a ton of stuff with you is there's not a lot to lose. I mean, I've done that where you bring so much gear in your backpack, you take something, you kind of just, right, just throw it in there. And then when you need it again, you can't find it because it's lost somewhere in the bag, which is always a hassle. Yeah. It's, it's annoying. I use the peak design bags, which they're, they're sort of a blessing and a curse because I'll forget the zip one side and I have crap falling out one side and the other. So, um, but I always try to keep lenses in there lately. I just bring one lens with me when I shoot, I use this, uh, I use an eight to 16 millimeter. I'm on Fuji for, for, uh, real estate. So I use the eight to 16 millimeter Fuji non, and that lens is phenomenal. Really gets me into some super tight situations. Um, yeah. What do you, you what really are you shooting? Up. What, what focus distance are you shooting on that? Because eight would be close to like what? That would be like a 12. That's a 12 millimeter on full frame equivalent. Yeah. So for me, I don't like shooting wide if I don't have to. I'm typically about 14 millimeters on APS-C, sometimes 12 millimeters. Usually I'm at 12 millimeters, which is about 18 millimeters on full frame, which I think 18 to 20 millimeters gives you a really, really nice image. Um, it doesn't distort the lines very much and it just looks super, super natural. I'm a big, big proponent of like these naturalistic shots, um, where they may just be, they're just more interesting than your typical, okay, angle, angle, angle. I feel like every real estate photographer, we all lean on these specific angles. When we walk into right. a room, every shot is at a sort of catty cornered angle to showcase how big it is. We always forget to to sort of take those more standard straight on shots. Mm -hmm. And that to me looks more interesting is that like that straight on shot. But yeah, 18 to 20 is, is, is what I would recommend if you're on full frame. Yeah. And then, like you said, I mean, stopping down higher F stops, super important, -stops. Um, which means you, you want a camera that can handle a decent amount of, um, ISO, right? So that's, that's a big deal because you don't want to shoot. You don't want to shoot, um, too slow. I mean, even though you're using a tripod, you can have the longer exposures. You're going to be there all day. You're going to be there all day. You could be shooting on carpet and, you know, the slightest movement's going to set that off. I used to use triggers and now I just use a two second timer just to get my hand out of the way. Yeah, that's what uh, I do. Two, two second, second timer, timer and I'm gone. My ISO stays on 500 all the time. I'm a big fan of Rich Bomb. Um, He's a uh, YouTube photographer, phenomenal guy. He's out of California. He's out of Sacramento, California. Um, but he's a big fan of leaving his camera at 500 ISO. And he shoots on Sony. And Sony, Sony's got some of the best low light capabilities. So, I mean, I love Fuji. But if I was somebody new to shooting real estate, I would say go with the Sony camera because you can, it's really hard to make a mistake with the Sony camera. It really is hard to make a mistake with the Sony camera for low light. That's just my opinion on that. Everybody's a little different, but um, even on their APS-C. But I would leave my camera at 500 ISO, and uh, that's that's where I sort of take my shots at. That's my baseline anyways. Yeah, I, 
that's that's kind of my baseline. And um, I do push it a lot. I, I do crank it up to 2000 sometimes if I need to, if there's yeah. really not a lot of light. And a lot of these mirrorless cameras, I'm on Nikon, they handle high ISO super well. You just don't see any grain. And if you do a little bit, you can- You can denoise it. You can denoise it. So for me with, with that, I, I used to use brackets. I was shooting brackets a lot I would, and I would blend them in post. And then I started shooting what we call, it's called flambient. Um, and where it's where you take one ambient shot and one flash shot and blend it. That to me is the easiest way to get a, a great image. Like, because it takes very minimal work to do. And almost any edit in software, you can stack and layer things or blend them essentially. And certain, you know, most of the time it works. The only times I ever find that it really doesn't work is if I'm dealing with something like, where there's blue walls or yellow walls, you got to be careful with things like that because it throws a color cast. But yeah. um, for the most part, it just that's that's my standard deal. I take two, literally two images, <laughs> a flambient shot and and a flash that's shot, awesome. and I'm I'm out of there, done. Yeah, I I, I mentioned to you on, on your live stream, but I I want to try flash. I yes. I should test yeah. it before I actually go do it in a client's house, like we just talked about. But for me, I'm doing all bracketed, and I'm usually doing about. I'm doing five brackets, all with two-stop difference and blending those in post. Um, I've gotten pretty pretty automated. Like I use Aurora HDR, I, I mentioned, um, to blend everything and basically slap a preset, a standard preset that I use for for real estate photography on that. So it comes out almost ready to deliver the yeah. to the client. I'll then put it into Lightroom and straighten it out, you know, any bowing of, of lines or anything like that. So... Um, that's kind of my process. I've really enjoyed it, but yeah, it is a yeah. little bit more, sounds a little more time consuming it's, than what it's, you're doing. It's pretty straightforward. Like I, it used to take me a long time to edit when I was doing HDR blends for some reason. Cause I wasn't ever really totally happy. And I always felt like my images were coming out like a little bit over processed for some reason when I would use HDR blend, but that was like the standard. That was like what every photographer was doing that I saw. So I was like, Hey, that's what the industry standard is. I'm going to do it. And then I started using the flambient method from Nathan Cool, And I was like, all right, this is definitely a lot easier. It's a lot less work on me because the flash, the flash is actually doing the heavy lifting. So I get this nice evening exposure. And then you just sort of paint in the ambient color, like whatever you, you got with your non-flash shot. And then the end result was I got something that looked you know, very artistic. Like it, it almost looked like, okay, you can picture this in a magazine type of thing and a little tweaks 30 seconds later, you know, however fast your computer could align images, you were done, you were done. And you get so proficient in this, like as you're going through a house, you're like, how can I make this shot easier for myself? And you'll know if you're going to get a good flash or not. You just know, like if it's a good one, you can review your image which I do a lot. I'll always review my image after I take it because the biggest thing is don't get lazy as you're shooting your shots. Like I tell photographers that work with me or train with me, don't get lazy because you may say, oh, I'll just deal with it later on or I'll let the editor deal with that later on. It's the worst mentality to have because you're going to screw yourself and create way more work because that one shot will end up taking you 20 minutes to fix later, like in post. And I think People get lazy. They just get lazy as they're going through a house and they just don't go that extra mile because they just got to get onto the next house. And that's that's a problem sometimes. Yeah, and I mean, that's such great advice. I think with anything that you're doing with a camera is try to get it as best as possible in camera. That means even what you're shooting, if you got to move something, move it because it's going to be, it's a lot quicker to move something than it is to have to go through the process of Photoshopping. I made that mistake yesterday. I, I shot a shot of a kitchen and on the, on this beautiful stainless steel fridge, they had like a sticky note, like, and it wasn't a big sticky note, oh. but I was like, crap, it's really detracting away from the kitchen. So I had to use content aware to remove it from the shot. But then I had to go through and look at every single photo that could have been facing the kitchen to make sure I removed that sticky note. So I ended up having to remove that little note five times and it would have just been simple for me to pull it off the fridge do my shots and then put it back on no problem but instead i had to go that route but that's that's what i'm talking about is just taking your time to make sure things are out of the way and it's to your liking because people always say oh, i'll photoshop it i'll photoshop 
that is a common statement and also a common misconception. Huge misconception, especially in real estate, huge, especially huge, huge, mostly huge. with agents, <laughs> right? Like, yes. oh, oh, you yeah. can just Photoshop that, right? Well, no, I mean, no, <laughs> no, I'm not Photoshopping that car out of the shot. Yeah. People want boxes, Photoshop. They'll, you know, oh, I got a hole in the wall. Can you Photoshop that? And that's the thing is like, they don't understand that we have certain you know, guidelines that we have to abide by as a photographer to make sure that, you know, we're not misleading a potential buyer. Like these are, these are things that are important. So sometimes I don't think they understand that though. Yeah. Well, Ken, I'm sure we could talk a long time about real estate and about drones and well, if they want more of that, they'll just have to go check out your, uh, your YouTube channel. Where can, uh, where can people find you if they want to to start checking out your channel and learn more about drones and, and real estate photography. So easiest thing to do is just type in original Dobo. Um, that'll, that'll lead you to all, all original Dobo roads lead to the channel. So, um, or if you want to look, it's original Dobo media on YouTube, but, uh, just type in an original Dobo that, that'll get you there. Definitely check out Ken's live stream guys, drone brews, a lot of fun, really, really good information and a good pe- a good, uh, good group of people that hang out and are chatting in the live chat. So definitely go check that out. Ken, thanks for coming on the show, man. No, thanks for having me on, brother. Well, guys, I hope you've enjoyed this episode with Original Dobo. He's a fantastic guy with a lot of information that is helpful, especially when it comes to flying drones. So go check out his channel. Of course, everything will be linked down in the show notes or the description of this video if you're watching the video version of the podcast. I hope you guys are enjoying that. All right, well, I'll talk to you guys next week. And don't forget to rate this podcast if you're listening in the Apple Podcast Player. See ya.